This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. to the Wednesday program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions and questions about stuff going on in your life. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585 if you're outside the local San Antonio area. You can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else is hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, because it's Wednesday, tonight we got an Old Testament study, and I'm excited about uh, the rest of Genesis from here on out. We're in Genesis chapter 39 tonight. I'm going to look at the first 12 verses of the of the chapter. We're talking about Joseph being sold into slavery into Egypt, and then, of course, being tempted by Potiphar's wife and running away. And then that's just going to set a trigger for all kinds of events in his life. Joseph is a wonderful and rich character study in our Bibles. So that's where we are tonight. Uh, you can watch it at calvaryessay.com. Now, just in case there's anybody in the audience who is struggling with temptations of any type, in this case, it's sexual temptation, but but you're struggling with temptation of any type. Joseph teaches us tonight how to resist. Probably you should be watching it. CalvarySA.com at 7 o'clock. And of course, Paula will be with me tomorrow in studio in the eight-day edition of the program, and we'd love to hear from you there. Okay, let's get to some questions that uh, have been sent in while we await your phone calls. One thing I do want to do, uh, I had a question yesterday that we couldn't read. Uh, it, we just, it just didn't make any sense to us. And there was some communication problems uh, technologically. Uh, and it was about uh, covenant theology and dispensational theology and the difference between those two. And we just couldn't read what was written, so I'm going to be able to do that. Now, we are, I said this yesterday, we are dispensationalists. Uh, it is the only way to interpret the Bible um, systematically that makes any sense to truly understand to whom the writer is saying, what did he intend to say or communicate in, v- in terms of the message. Uh, and it's important that you understand. And uh, there are, are in traditional dispensationalism, there are seven dispensations, and those dispensations are easily identifiable. Uh, as we go through the scripture. Uh, So I won't talk so much about that because we've talked about dispensationalism a lot. Um, Covenant theology is is almost always associated with Reformed or Calvinist theologians. And what the covenant theologians teach is that the Old Testament Israelites and the New Testament believers are one people and that the church is nothing more than a continuation and successor of Israel. In other words, all the promises to Israel will be inherited by the church. Now, this often, not always, but often goes into replacement theology, which is heresy. 
Um, they would claim, of course, that the promises given to Israel were forfeited by Israel, thus inherited by the church. That's not true. And most covenant theologians don't believe that. Now, I really disagree with covenant theology, but it's unfair to say they're all um, believers in replacement theology. Um, the church in covenant theology, as you understood, as including the saints of all of the ages, they teach that the church, uh, as Israel's successor has, successor, has now absorbed and appropriated Old Testament prophecies and promises. Uh, the promises which God made to Israel are now being fulfilled by the church, or they've been forfeited because of Israel's unbelief. Again, replacement theology, does, it's not a, a one-size-fits-all sort of system. Uh, this is directly in opposition to dispensationalism, uh, which makes a clear and biblical distinction between God's program for Israel and God's program for the church. And we could do a whole bunch on that, but I think that's enough to answer the question. Um, so sorry for the confusion yesterday, uh, you who wrote in and asked the question. Um, uh, and um, that was an anonymous call, so I don't even know who to say I'm sorry to, but I hope that does it. Okay, let's get to some questions. Rich says, uh, Pastor, and I don't believe pastors are being persecuted if they're being jailed for defying public health orders. Persecution doesn't result when a choice is made to oppose the law. Now, Rich, I'm assuming this is in response to a question that we had um, early last week, actually, um, about the pastor who was being jailed uh, in uh, Alberta, Canada. Uh, and I said, this is persecution. It is the very definition of being persecuted. Now, this pastor, James Coates, and by the way, just for everybody, I think it was yesterday or the day before, they finally released him. He was in jail, um, had a very difficult time in jail, uh, but he was in jail for um, three weeks, I think, and and um, uh, there's no way you can deny that that's being persecution. Now, there are consequences, and the thing about James Coates is that he was a man of conviction. And he accepted the consequences for the choices he made. Uh, but that still doesn't mean, Rich, that he wasn't being persecuted. Whenever government authorities or local authorities try to inhibit the church from doing their job. In Peter and John's day, you'll remember that they were ordered not to, to preach in the name anymore. And Peter said, well, you have to decide what's right, to, to obey men or to obey God. And then he, then he said, as for us, we cannot stop declaring this name. And the same thing would be true for us and Peter and John and the others who were persecuted and in the same way we're being persecuted. Now, there are times in our government system where civil disobedience is appropriate. And this is one of those times. Uh, I hope I never get tested on this. I'm not a brave man. But we're not going to close our church doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what public health orders are given. Um, the command that we've been given from God is to continue assembling together, teaching the word, equipping the saints for the work of ministries. And Rich, I believe it's all that much more important in these last days. So if you think that the pastor was jailed for wrongly defying a public health order, uh, I disagree. I disagree very strongly. I cannot believe that we live in a time when um, holding church is a crime. I, I, nobody that has ever been raised in this country would have ever gotten to the point where they would have believed that that was even possible. And yet so many of us, and Rich, uh, I don't know whether you're a believer or not, you're listening to a Christian program, Christian station, um, I think if you would go back just a short time in the way that you are thinking about the church and its role, you never would have dreamed that it could be possible that churches would be ordered to close. Let me just say one other thing, Rich, and this is uh, meant as, uh, I hope, an exhortation to those pastors, and I know pastors listen to this program because we get contacted by them. Um I never thought there'd be a day when pastors would willingly close their church. Uh, it is, I think, a shame 
to do so. Uh, Not to give the people that you shepherd the opportunity to make their own choice. Um, I never dreamed we'd be at this place, and yet here we are. We are in the last hours of the last days, Rich, and we need to be ready. Here is a question from Jared. He says, do you think musical or singing ability is a spiritual gift? Um, Jared, I don't necessarily think it's a spiritual gift. Now, I I think surely the, the Holy Spirit can enhance a gift for sure and empower a gift for sure. Uh, but uh, you know, musical ability or singing ability is uh, is is something that their people are often born with. Um, every time uh, the singers in our church open their mouths, you stand in awe at just how gifted they really are. And and I I think it's a gift. I don't have those gifts. I wish I did. Um, but they take the gift that God has given them. And they use it for his glory. And that gives it a completely spiritual application. You know, one of the things Paul and I, we talk about, we like to watch shows like The Voice and stuff like that. So <laughs> we listen to these people. Excuse me, I had to cough. We're listening to these people with these unbelievable voices and some of them very, very, very young. And there's no way that... that that just happens. That's just all God. And it's such a wonderful gift that they have. And while I'd like to have those gifts, I don't. Um, but the, the the point is that there's tons and tons of people that can sing or play musical instruments. There's no shortage of genius, musical genius. But there's something about that gift when it's used for God's glory that changes everything. It makes it completely different. So, Jared, um, it is a gift given by God. Uh, DNA sometimes plays a role in it, to be sure. Um, But uh, when it's used for this purpose of glorifying God, uh, then it becomes a spiritual gift given to anyone and everyone who listens. Hope that makes sense. By the way, we got, you know, Easter. This Sunday is Palm Sunday, and the following Sunday is Easter Sunday. And we're excited here at Calvary Chapel because our entire band is going to be back for the first time since uh, the, the the quarantine started way back in March of last year. And and we're really excited. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be hardly able to preach probably because I'm going to be crying the whole time that they're singing. So I'm really excited about that. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. The phone's been quiet this week. If you are outside the local area, eight seven seven six three zero five seven five seven. Here is an anonymous statement, not even a question. I think everyone has a relationship with God, no matter what they believe or don't believe. Well, anonymous, you are free to think that all you want, but you're wrong. I can demonstrate it's wrong in the Bible. Now, if you probably don't believe in the Bible, but let me give you the evidence. The evidence is that Jesus Christ was a real human being. He also happened to be God. He proved he was not only the Son of God, but God the Son when they killed him and he didn't stay dead. So that's how we know that everything he said about himself was true. He is the way to heaven, the only way to heaven. He's the only access that sinful man has to an infinitely holy God. And because you, Anonymous, are guilty of sin, you have no access to that relationship. Only those who are made righteous by the blood of Jesus have a relationship with God. Now, I'll give you this. Everyone is a creation of God. And by that I mean we're all created by the the method of creation that God provided. Adam and Eve are the only two created by the finger of God. But the rest of us, we're all creations of, of the system that God has created. But we're not children of God. We have no relationship with God until we can approach a holy God. And the only way to do that is with Jesus Christ. Thank you for the statement. 
Let's go to my friend Tanya in San Leandro, California. Tanya, good to hear from you. Long time. I know, Papa. I've been wanting to call, but honestly, the time change has really messed me up. I look at the, I look at the clock, and it's like, oh, wait, I just missed the radio program. But I've been, <laughs> <laughs> I've been meaning to call. Um, I have a question. This was weeks back, and, and I've since done a little bit of research on this, but and I'm sure you had this question before, but I was reading about Lot's daughters. And um, did he have more than the two daughters that were with him? Because when you read in Genesis, it talks about how um, Lot tells his son-in-laws. So did he have other daughters or did Lot was Lot dishonest in telling them, hey, these girls never been with a man? I was just confused about the son-in-law piece. Well, the, the sons-in-laws, no, he had two daughters and only two daughters, Tanya. But um, the the uh, sons-in-law, remember, that, that he couldn't convince them to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. And so they perished in the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's why his daughters uh, came up with this plan to lay with their father because they thought, well, now we have no... Uh, ability to bear children, our our families will not continue, and uh, and that's why they got their father drunk, and uh, and they lay with him. Um, he did not know he was doing it. Now that's not an excuse for the sin, uh, for the drunkenness. Um, his his daughters obviously were very heavily influenced by their life growing up in and around Sodom and Gomorrah, but it was only. Uh, the two daughters and the sons, the sons-in-law who who perished. Does that help? Clarifying. I have a clarifying question. So were they actually married because Lot tells uh, the men that come to the door that, that their, his daughters have never known a man. So they were like betrothed to be married, you think, or... Well, before, uh, it could have been that they were betrothed. Obviously, in a Jewish culture, betrothal was uh, obligated or was as as much an obligation as being married was. Uh, It was legally binding. Um, But uh, it's also um, possible that that, uh, right after that incident, uh, be, you know, when the men got, they were they were stricken blind. Uh, right after that incident, they got married and that changed. But but probably uh, they were just betrothed. Okay, thanks, Papa. That was my question. I've had for like three weeks. <laughs> okay, my my love Thank to your you. guys. Yep, I'll see you guys soon. Oh, oh, that's right. You're going to be visiting. Praise the Lord. Good, good, good. It's always good to hear from Tanya. Here is a question from Henry. He says, it seems to me like Hebrews 1.1 says God no longer speaks to people. Am I right? Um, No, Henry, it doesn't say that. It says that uh, you have to have the context. Now, remember, uh, Hebrews is is written to Jewish converts to Christianity with a Jewish mindset. And so what he's saying is, um, in the past, God spoke to us through the prophets at various times and in, in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in son, and that's a literal translation, uh, not through his son or by his son, but in son. And Jesus is God's final word. What that means, Henry, is that after Jesus came to earth, God had nothing more to say. Now, we know it doesn't mean that God doesn't speak to us because Jesus himself said to his disciples that, that I have much more to tell you more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will lead you into all truth. So God began speaking to the people right away. As soon as the spirit of God was poured out on the day of Pentecost, then that sort of opened the access to heaven again. But remember now, Jesus said that of the Holy Spirit, I will send another comforter or counselor. And really what he's saying is, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to send you another me. Same substance, same uh, character, same nature, just a different form. Instead of being with Jesus physically, Jesus Christ in us, the hope of glory, Jesus would be in us, relationally speaking. So uh, it doesn't at all indicate God that no longer speaks to people. He does. He speaks to us primarily, Henry, through his word. But he's also able to speak to our hearts. And that's really an important thing for us to remember. You know, we need to sit and take time 
to learn to listen to the voice of God. We need to know the, enough of the word to be able to discern by comparing what we think we've heard God speak to our hearts against the word of God. But no, God, a uh, relationship is God speaking, uh, us listening, us speaking, and God listening. That's what a relationship is all about. So what uh, Hebrews is saying, Henry, is that that in the past God would send prophets, thus saith the Lord type of prophet. Um, but no longer does he do that because Jesus is the fulfillment, not only of the law, but of the prophets as well. God has nothing more to say. Jesus is sort of the exclamation point of God in a world uh, that he was sent to. So, Henry, thank you for the question. It's a good one. Nick wants to know, Pastor, on what is amillennialism? Um, well, a millennium, of course, means a thousand years. Revelation chapter 20 uh, talks about it uh, a lot. Um, it's a literal thousand years. If you put an A before it or A before it, it means non-millennium. So it means that people don't believe in it. So an amillennialist, Nick, would say that um, there's there's not a, a, a literal thousand years um, at some point in the future, there are some who would indicate that the uh, um, thousand years, when they when they try to explain away the thousand years over and over being referred to in in Revelation, they try to explain and say, well, well, we're in the thousand years now. Uh, there was an old uh, Presbyterian pastor, D. James Kennedy, who actually was really a good guy and and loved God. Uh, he was uh, evangelism explosion was his program. Uh, it was effective in terms of evangelism. Uh, but he came from a reform background and just didn't believe that the thousand years. He, he said we're in it, and that's why he was so politically active. So it's very important. Um, that we, we read what the Bible says and take it at face value. But uh, it's just somebody who does not believe in a thousand-year reign. Let's go to Jeff on line one. Jeff, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Don't worry, baby. Sorry, I was listening to the Beach Boys just now. <laughs> See, I thought you were trying to call me. I was trying to call you. Yeah, you yeah. feel it. Your ears are burning. Hi, Pastor Ron. Hi, Jeff. Hi. Hey, um. I have a we have a friend in Mexico that was recently ordained and we've hmm. known him for about 15 years and he's in I, I don't know it's an apostolic denomination and uh he told us after his his uh, ordination last week that uh the uh, one of the bishops read him a new rule that he was unaware of that just be aware that if you refuse to marry a same-sex couple, that you will immediately be stripped of your credentials. So just really a hard position for him to be in right now. Now, now um, Jeff, let me interrupt. Did you say if he refuses to marry a same-sex couple? Yes, if he refuses. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's no, problematic. There's no question. Yeah. Yeah. Problematic. The, obviously, uh, the, the apostolics have got all kinds of doctrinal problem, problems, but um, um, I, I did not. I was not aware that they'd gone to that extreme. If one of my guys that we've sent out and ordained, uh, if they married a same-sex couple, I would pull the ordination. So it's just the opposite end of where we would be coming from. Yeah, really strange stuff. So. Um, I had a question for you. I'm really excited to talk to you, but of course tomorrow I'll be doubly excited to talk to you. Um, <laughs> Good. Uh, the, the doctrine of Wesley's doctrine of provenient grace. Um, I, I'm sure you're familiar with that, and I don't know how biblical that is. Um, it, 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 it feels like it feels meaningful to me, but I'm not sure. And I wonder if you would talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I will, Jeff, and I'll probably have to take this to the other side of the break for the rest of the conversation. Uh, but uh, I, I don't want to be—I don't want to be really quick on it. Um, so let, let me let me just make a comment, and then you'll hear the music start, and we'll go to uh, go to the break, and then I'll answer the prevenient grace question on the other side. Um, you know, um, you said about the the apostolics if they refuse to marry. Uh, uh, that's the times that we live in. 
we are watching before our very eyes the, the, the great falling away, the great apostasy. It's happening inside the professing Christian church. I read something somebody sent me today that indicates that uh, the, the guy that, that uh, um, shot the, the massage therapists in Atlanta, um, it was because he sat under a Southern Baptist church that taught that sex was, uh, was sin, that it was wrong. The purity culture is leading people to do this, and women are being taken advantage of, and now women are being murdered. It has nothing to do with that, Jeff. We're watching the great falling away, and we need to be able to identify what's going on. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left. On the other side of the break, I'll answer Jeff's question about prevenient grace, and I'd love your phone calls, 340-9585 or toll-free, 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at pastorronkslr at gmail.com. That's pastorronkslr at gmail.com. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the program 340-9585 for your live calls and questions i want to answer jeff's question about prevenient grace it is a theological term to describe the grace that draws someone to christ um, and, and really, it's sort of a bridge, Jeff, between uh, Calvinism and Arminianism. And, and I think they're both sort of wrong-spirited in the way they do it, but there's nothing mean-spirited about it. Um, uh, the prevenient grace would be described by an Armenian as, as, as that, that sort of pre-grace. Before you get saved by grace, there's a grace that allows you to do away with the the um, uh, the, the sin uh, corruption of sin uh, that that disables us from being able to make a choice to serve God, uh, the, uh, the Calvinist doctrine total depravity. You know, if we're dead, we 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 can't make a decision. We have no free will, kind of thing. Well, the the Arminianists would say prevenient grace uh, is just God's work of grace that comes alongside us and allows us just enough to believe. And then we can make the decision and then we can become part of the family. Now, here's the problem with it. Um, Jesus said that when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So the, 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 the thing that comes beside us to convince us that we're sinners and if we don't repent, there's going to be judgment and then equally convinces us that righteousness is possible as a gift from God to us. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That's not really prevenient grace at all. What it is, it's the Holy Spirit. If you go through the book of Acts, Jeff, and do this with a Bible concordance on your computer, um, you're going to see three distinct relationships that every believer has with the Holy Spirit. And in order, um, the first relationship any of us have with the Holy Spirit is the para experience. And that's when the English word we would use would be the word with. When when the Holy Spirit comes with us, or even more literally, alongside of us, and then convicts us about our, our, our sin nature. You know, when I got saved, Jeff, I, I'd been doing all the same horrible things. And while I knew I was miserable, I, I, I didn't really think that the things that I was doing were sin. It wasn't a right or wrong thing. No, I had a conscience and I knew there were some things wrong. But but when the Holy Spirit started to come alongside me, I was so heavily convicted that the things that I was doing were wrong 
that I knew that I was going to pay the price for it. So that's the Holy Spirit coming alongside us or coming with us. That's what they would describe as provenient grace. But Jesus described that as a function of the Holy Spirit. The second relationship that we have with Holy Spirit is when he comes in us. The Greek word is en. Our English word, of course, is in. And that's when we believe, having been convicted of sin and of righteousness and judgment, we accept Jesus Christ and then he comes in us, Ephesians 1 says, uh, as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, a down payment on, on eternity with, with God. So that's the inexperience. That's when we are sealed with the Spirit. It's when we become part of the family. It's when we're born again. The third experience that we have with the Holy Spirit is the epi, E-P-I. The, our English word is is upon. You'll read it throughout the 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 uh, Book of Acts. Um, but but it's it's the Greek word epi, and that's the the work that empowers us to do whatever it is God has asked us to do. So whenever we're dealing in the supernatural, whenever we're being obedient to God and need his power, that's the epi or the upon experience of the Holy Spirit. And that's the biblical way to understand our relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. Hope that helps, Jeff. Thank you. It's good to hear from you. I appreciate it very, very much. Just for the rest of you, uh, Jeff's reference to Don't Worry Baby was that's my ringtone song. I like that. I love every time the phone rings because I used to get all, oh, God, who is it now? What's going wrong now? But but now I've got Don't Worry Baby. So when Paula calls me, and I know it's her because her picture shows up, I, I answer. I said, Don't Worry Baby. And, and so she knows. So that's what Jeff was referring to. Here is a question from Beth. She wants to know, will there be physical pain in hell? Uh, Beth, the answer apparently is yes. Jesus said weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, that sounds pretty painful. Luke chapter 16, um, I'm, I'm, I'm in agony because of this fire, the rich man said. Uh, that seems to be physical. Um, it, it will just be a state of life so unbearable, but also so unending um, that if we could die, we'd want to. But, but of course, we're all eternal beings, so we, we'll spend eternity somewhere either with Jesus or separated from him. And, uh, and it, it appears that there will be physical pain in hell. Now, relative to some of the words, I, I don't know if there'll be teeth to weep and gnash. Um, I don't know whether there, there's a literal fire. I, I, you know, obviously we're not given that information. Um, when the rich man said, "I'm I'm in, in agony because of this fire," um, you know that we don't know whether Jesus is using uh, fire as a metaphor uh, to communicate the idea, or whether it's a little literal fire. It's been um, Dante's Inferno, of course, painted it as as a literal fire and much worse as you get to the different levels of hell. But um, it, it appears, Beth, there will be physical pain in hell. Um, remember, there are different levels of hell, different levels of torment in hell. Um, and uh, Jesus made that pretty clear uh, in his in his parables. Good question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. here is a better question. Ben says, is there anything we should be doing to prepare for the rapture? Um, Ben, yeah, every day with Jesus. Uh, I say just be with Jesus all the time. And and if if you're with Jesus, then you're doing everything that you can to be prepared. It's not like we need to do something. The rapture is going to happen. If you're a born-again Christian, you're going to be taken away in the rapture. What we should be doing to prepare for the rapture is telling other people about Jesus. We should be active in sharing our faith. I think that's the thing that we miss out on. We want to, okay, how can I prepare? You know, when I um, go back a ways, but when Y2K and all the, the, the fear and the hysteria about Y2K was going on, uh, sadly, even inside the church and in and, and, and Christians' lives, um, um, you know, we, we, we stockpiled things. I didn't, but lots of Christians did because we ought to be prepared. The only thing you have to do to prepare for the rapture, Ben, is to be with Jesus. 
every day, every morning, realize he's the Lord, you're the servant. Okay, Lord, what about me and what about today? And there's nothing that will be left undone. But see, if we're about his business, we're to occupy till he comes, the way we occupy is by living our faith, walking with Jesus. If we have jobs, we go to work, we do the best we can, we do all things as unto the Lord. If we're husbands or wives, then we're the best husband or wife that we can be. If we're fathers or mothers, then it's to raise our kids to know the Lord and love the Lord, to be consistent in our walks so, so that our witness has power. And then people will listen to you when you tell them that Jesus is coming soon. You know, Ben, I've been dealing with this. We had a, a pastor's discipleship class uh, two weeks ago, or, or actually a week ago this past Saturday, but it'll be two weeks this week coming up. And uh, one of the things we talked about was was in these last days, Jesus is coming. And there's, there's actually some people who are are reluctant because, well, what about all the people who are who are, are going to be judged? They're going to be plunged into the Great Tribulation. Well, that's why we need to be about our Father's business. Because all we can do is tell him that he's coming. All we can do is tell him what the gospel message declares, that Jesus Christ was given for the for the forgiveness of sins and that whosoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. But we can't make the choices for them. And while well, we say all the time, even so come quickly, Jesus, and, and I made it clear on this program over the years, Ben, that, that I want nothing more than for Jesus to come. But let's say nine years ago when we started this program, it's been nine years, I think, yeah, nine years, um, um, think about the people that, that got saved in that nine years. If Jesus was... Um, here nine years ago, then then we all know people that would would be left behind. So, if we have nine more years, and I don't think we do, that's just my opinion. Uh, I see this falling away, and I see the deterioration of of um, the complete destruction of morality in the world. Um, but if Jesus leaves us here for another nine years, then we need to be sure that we get as many unbelievers and help convert them to believers as possible. So that's the only thing we should be doing. And and we're so distracted in the church. We're so distracted by politics. We're distracted by the cares of this world. I've been teaching on Sundays in 1 Corinthians 7 for the last three weeks. And Paul had the same concern then. Hey, the time is short, and, and, and you know, a married man is concerned about his wife, uh, a married woman concerned about her husband. He says, it's better to be single, unencumbered, free from worry. And in, in the context of First Corinthians, there was some present crisis that we don't know what it was. And, and Paul is saying, look, because of the present crisis, then it's better to be unmarried. It doesn't mean it's wrong to be married. It's just better to be be uh, attached, unencumbered. Um, well, 2,000 years later, the same thing is true. Every one of us, married or single, needs to be focused on doing our Father's business. And we're so easily distracted. We're focused on... Uh, politics, we're focused on social justice issues, we're focused on um, um, woke philosophy. Uh, they're just, it's just crazy the things that are happening um, when in reality there's only one thing that matters. Are we being obedient to what Jesus asked us to do? So Ben, that's all you should be doing. Nothing more, nothing less. Marcy says, Pastor on, do we need to fear generational curses if someone in our family was a really bad person? Um, Marcy, no. I'm glad because I had some people in my family that were really, really bad people. So, uh, no, there's no such thing as a generational curse. That's bad theology. It's bad doctrine. It is harmful doctrine. And basically what it says, and the reason it's so popular, by the way, among the, the prosperity types, the name it and claim it types, is it excuses us from being responsible for our sin. If I am a sex 
addict. I don't like that term, but but you get where I'm going at. Well, it's not my fault. It's a curse. I, I had my father, or my grandfather, or his father was was um, a sex pervert or sexually uh, addicted, and and so now I've got the curse. When in reality, we just need to say no, and we don't want to do that. So no, you need not fear generational curses. That would be like fearing pink elephants. There's no such thing. And uh, um, Marcy, I, I really would ask you to question the type of teaching that you've been under, what you're reading, or where you're going to church, because that nonsense is just silliness. and It's just not, not the case. 340-9585. Here is um, a question from Anonymous Skeptic. Uh, lots of people claim to be God. We call them crazy. Why do you, or why should I believe that Jesus wasn't just another crazy person claiming to be God? Well, anonymous skeptic, there's a, a million reasons, but I'm gonna I'm gonna settle with two, just two, and then you can you can sort of wrestle with these. First, if Jesus had said he was God, and when he died. Had he stayed dead, then Jesus would have just been another crazy person claiming to be God. And see, your question or your statement um, indicates you understand this. Jesus was either who he said he was, or he was a nut. It's that simple. Or, Or he was just a willful liar. Those are the only three choices. And uh, if, if Jesus was just another crazy person claiming to be God, there would be no evidence that what he said was true. But the overriding evidence, the undeniable evidence, is that of an empty tomb. You know, the devil, if, if, if he wanted to stop Christianity, all he had to do was come up with the body. The enemies of God, the Jewish leaders, the Romans... All they had to do was come up with the body, and believe me, they tried. All they had to do was torture Jesus' disciples who became apostles and get them to recant the resurrection story. And certainly, if it was a lie, as was widely circulated in the world at the time, if it was a lie, then, then I mean... They could have meant well, but but they wouldn't have died for a lie. They wouldn't have been tortured and 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 allowed it to happen if all they had to do was admit that it was a fraud. Jesus resurrected from the dead. He is alive this very day. No other religious leader has ever made the claims and then validated their claims. By staying alive forever, Jesus alone did. And again, the evidence, um, anonymous skeptic, is overwhelming for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only fools or willful liars um, deny that the resurrection is real. It's just that simple. That's that's just the the supernatural evidence. But there's another piece of evidence. Jesus, when he died. There was 11 people with him. 50 days later, there was 120 followers of Jesus. In the Roman world, 120 people. And look what God has done from that small seed of people. The 11 apostles changed the course of this world change the course of the world. How could they do that if they weren't supernaturally empowered? There was no Twitter, there was no Facebook or, or Instagram or TikTok or anything else. Eleven apostles, twelve when you count Matthias, change the history of this world. And the numbers of believers increase so rapidly exponentially so that it was impossible to deny that there was something to this thing that at the time they called it the way. It was later that 
followers of Jesus were first called Christians in Antioch. As much persecution as the church faced then and then in later centuries, up to the time that we live now, they've done everything they could to cause the church just to die out. And literally, there has been multiplied trillions of people over the centuries who became believers. That's all we need to know. I mean, there's no possible way that could happen if Jesus was just another crazy person claiming to be God. You know, Anonymous, we've had uh, people show up here at church. I think every church has uh, people that claim to be the Christ. Jesus said that would happen. He said, don't believe them. When he comes again, there will be signs and wonders so that no one will be able to deny who he is or what he's done. But in the meantime, you're right. There's a lot of crazy people who claim to be God. Jesus just wasn't one of them. If you start, if you start at the empty tomb, then here's what I can promise you. It'll be easy for you to leave the rest of the Bible. So... Deal with that, anonymous skeptic. Thank you for sending the question in. 340-9585. We still got some time to take some phone calls in this half of the program. Uh, Ruth says, I believe Jesus was the Son of God, but how can I be sure he was God? And then she asks, am I still saved? Ruth, your question seems honest, coming from the right heart. But here's the thing that you've got to understand. If Jesus wasn't God, then he couldn't have been the Son of God either. Now, depending on where you are in your walk, there's a couple of things that are possible. First, you could be a brand new believer, and you've always heard that Jesus was the Son of God, but, but how did Jesus claim to be God? And, of course, there are those who lie and say he never claimed to be God when we can point to over a hundred places in the gospel accounts where he clearly stated he was God, even his enemies acknowledge you, a mere man, claim to be equal with God. Over and over and over, Jesus made that 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 claim. Um, so so the transition for you has got to be believing not only was he the Son of God, but that he was God the Son. The second person of the triune God. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son. And then the way you can settle it once and for all, the same question I just, or same response I just gave to the anonymous skeptic, is the empty tomb. Jesus said he was going to be killed. He was. He said he wouldn't stay dead. He would rise in three days, and he did. Now, if that's the case, how can there be any question? So if you're a new believer, Check it out. There the possibility is that the enemy is just pounding you with doubt. If the enemy is pounding you with doubt, I mean, advise you or ask you to go to our website, calvaryessay.com, and listen to the last three Friday night Bible studies that I've done. They're easy to find in order. Just listen, listen to them in order. Go back three weeks and two weeks and last week, and then tune again. Tune in again this Friday because I'm going to continue doing it. But doubt isn't a weapon that the enemy uses. And and uh, like I said, he's persistent. He's not going to try. Regarding whether or not you're still saved, uh, honest doubt is okay. God can deal with that. Now, if you say, I believe Jesus was the Son of God, but he wasn't God, then you're not saved because only God can forgive sins. And if, if Jesus isn't God, then he's impotent to forgive sins. So Ruth Take my challenge. God wants you to be sure. Um, the book of First John, the whole purpose of the book is that we might know for sure is the idea that we are children of God, sons and daughters of God. Okay, last question for the program today. Mark says, why did Jesus allow legions, demons to go into the pigs? Uh, you know, for, for some reason, Mark, uh, demons don't like to be unclothed or, or they don't like to be 
uh, out in arid places and dry places. That they, they need a human uh, or, or at least a physical host. And uh, in the case of Legion, we know there were at least 2,000 demons, maybe more. Uh, but they begged Jesus when they saw Jesus coming up to Legion and his friend who was there with him in the Decapolis in the, in the Ten Cities. Um, they cried out to him, Oh, Son of God, Son of Man, why, why have you come to destroy us? And they begged him to let them go into the pigs. Now, why did he do? Why did Jesus just not say, No, get out of here? Well, I think, remember, there's a big crowd around, including his disciples who will be apostles. And I think Jesus allowed them to go into the pigs because he knew exactly what was going to happen. And that was those pigs are going to run off the cliff, which would have been just maybe the most effective sermon illustration ever about the intent of the enemy. He came to rob, to kill, to steal, and destroy. I think if we saw all of those pigs falling off the roof or falling off the the cliff, uh, committing pig suicide, and Jesus would look at us and say, that's the intent of the devil toward you, I think we'd take that very seriously. So I think he allowed them to do it uh, simply because it would give him an opportunity to illustrate the devil's intent toward humans, toward mankind. So that's why, Mark, he did it. And, and uh, tough job. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Paula, Paula's going to be live in studio with me tomorrow on the date day edition of the program. Tonight, Genesis 39, the first 12 verses. We really dig into Joseph's life. It is an inspiration. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, we'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.